trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Look, I know that we live in serious times. And try as I might, I still take myself far too seriously. But I'm here today to uh, encourage you to sit down, pull up a chair, sit down. Let's uh, let's revel in wrong think, meaning let's question the narrative. Let's think for ourselves. Let's see if we can make sense of what's going on around us without having to be spoon fed. Here's what you're supposed to believe by some, uh, you know, blow dried, highly paid spinmeister. Sound like a deal? Okay, well, let's let's dive right in. Our show is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast with my friend John Harvey. By the way, he has a special offer for my listeners. If you use the code BHIDE when making a purchase from his TMCP Nation store, um, you'll get a very nice... Uh, you, you, actually, you'll get a you'll get a very nice gift if you spend a hundred dollars or more at his store, and uh, he's got some great stuff. If you love freedom, I would really encourage, especially if if there are people on your birthday list or you know you're looking just for gifts to sock away even for Christmas, this would be a great place to go. Now, having said that, came across uh, this was a memory that popped up on Facebook, and it was just so good. I have to share this with you. It's, it's just an insight that is very easy to forget, especially when we're, you know, legislatures are in session right now all across the country. And boy, they're busy, you know, in the business of making laws and, you know, in, using power and influence, you know, hopefully to help the people. But Isaac Morehouse, a few years ago, offered these thoughts whenever you hear the word support. He says, almost every time someone uses the word support, it sounds nice, but it actually means something nasty. He says, when people say they support something, it usually means that they want government to make laws that will advance that thing that they support. Legislation is not like business or family or society because those institutions require persuasion and value creation to get the thing you support to win. Legislation is a different beast. And he says the single feature that distinguishes governments from every other institution is that when is that they initiate violence to back everything they do. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button here for a second to just tell you as an aside, that truth makes a lot of people uncomfortable, including people who would, I think, identify as, well, I'm a conservative, freedom-minded, you know, uh, red-blooded American. I, I'm not the kind of person who really likes big government. But if you point out, well, every law... Every ordinance, every little official rule at some level is backed by official violence. It's an uncomfortable truth. A lot of people will actually get defensive. Some will walk away from the conversation at that point. It's painful for them to consider. So Isaac Morehouse says, when someone supports something by wishing there were government action, support has a very different meaning than the nice one we give it. The nice kind of support, it often means, uh, you know, you invest your money in it or you say nice things about something. Support, as most often used, however, means desire for government action. So he says, to bring clarity and prudence, we should use a more accurate phrase. So he says, try this out with yourself and others. See if it changes the way you think about things. 
every time you see the word support. Replace it with the phrase advocate violence on behalf of, because that's usually what it means. That's why supporters of things tend to be regressive and uncivilized. To advocate violence on behalf of something is the approach of very bad children and animals. Humans can do better in 99 out of 100 situations. In fact, he says if you modified the statement to advocate the initiation of violence on behalf of, you could do better 100 times out of 100. Now, Isaac Morehouse says violence sucks. But as a defense against violence may be the the least bad approach, initiating violence never is. And it's also interesting when you consider the fact that most supporters of wars, drug bans, wage mandates, border walls, land use restrictions, etc., would find it unthinkable to initiate violence directly on behalf of those things. How many, when they say they support bans on fossil fuels, head to their neighbor's house with a gun and promise to cage or kill them if they don't destroy their car and buy a Prius? But those same people happily vote for people to vote for bills, to fund other people, to hire others, to order others, to send threats to their neighbors. The ultimate end of which is the same should they refuse to comply. He did it. He stripped away all the sugar coating that the politicians put on it. That's why you don't ever utter the words, well, there ought to be a law for this. Because in doing so, you're inviting a man with a gun to come sit down at the table. Now, back to Isaac's uh, commentary. He says, the state is that great obfuscating abstraction where we hide our violence in a fog of procedure and collectivism. But he says it's the most dangerous institution in human history. And he's right. He's absolutely right. And even when the state says, hey, I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to make life better for you. I'm just trying to make things safer for you. It's not. I'll give you an example of what that looks like. And, and this, this pains me to even point out. But uh, I noticed uh, in Idaho, where I live, the Idaho State Police recently uh, graciously accepted, uh, I think it's called a Burn Foundation, um, B-Y-R-N-E Foundation uh, grant of how much was it? It was like a couple hundred million dollars. It was a lot of money. Maybe it was $200 million total that they sent out, and Idaho got a portion of this, but it's money to implement red flag laws by other means. They're, they're called extreme protection orders and so forth, but the idea is, well, uh, what we're going to do is you know, see if we can set up a system where if someone is perceived to be a threat by someone else, we can take their guns away and then you know, sort it out after they've proven to the satisfaction of the court that they're really not a danger to themselves or anybody else. Now, on the surface, right, it's like, well, that'll protect us all right. Yeah, keep the guns out of the hands of crazies. But then you consider how easy is it to make an accusation? Now, if you've ever watched you know, someone go through a particularly bitter divorce or something like that, think about the kinds of accusations that can be leveled just out of anger. Yeah, it gets ugly in a big, fat hurry. Tell me that wouldn't be abused. And the fact of the matter is, Idaho's legislature has not passed anything resembling red flag laws. Thank goodness. And yet you have the highest police agency in the state, you know, readily embracing federal money for the purpose of exploring how we can do it. Okay, I hope it doesn't sound like, boy, you're just throwing all the cops under the bus here. No, but I'm specifically questioning the leadership of the Idaho State Police and saying, why? 
Why would you do that? Unless it's really just about, well, we've got to have this monopoly on power and the only way to get through you know, that uh, that monopoly on power is to make sure we have some kind of trump card we can pull to disarm the populace at will. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what they're trying to do, but I'm saying it's putting into place the kind of policy that could quickly be abused and used for purposes like that. That's a very bad idea. Someone along the way, someone who's not as principled, is is going to come along eventually and say, oh, you know, turnkey authoritarianism, turnkey tyranny. All I have to do is turn the key and away we go. If that's happening in Idaho, you can only imagine what's going on other places. I, Idaho gets a reputation, I think, as a, as a you know, the rock-ribbed red state, you know, hardcore conservative. And there's definitely a love of freedom here that you will not find in some other states. But... When you get into the upper levels of politics, when you get to where the power resides, I hate to say it, but they are as corrupt and power-driven as any of their blue state counterparts. The, The leadership of the political parties, and that includes the Republican Party, tend to be very... Um, pragmatic when it comes to the exercise of power. I'm, I'm, if they haven't read Machiavelli, they've missed a great opportunity because he was talking about them. I'm going to give you one more thought here. This is just a quote from Lysander Spooner. Anytime you hear someone stumping for, you know, gun control, and trust me, anytime there's anything that could be used as a high-profile shooting, they're going to stump for gun control. Lysander Spooner, that wonderful attorney from the 19th century, said to ban guns because criminals use them is to tell the law-abiding that their rights and liberties depend not on their own conduct, but on the conduct of the guilty and the lawless. Okay, now as, as a free man, as a citizen, the kind of person who has taken responsibility for his own life, it's unacceptable to me that politicians would try to impose those kinds of conditions on us. And you can make up your own mind, but... I really believe that we would be a better country, we would be a better society if more people had the understanding that a free man is the person who does not live under any law to which he has not consciously consented. And there's a difference even between law and legislation. I wish our politicians understood it. Clearly, sometimes they don't. So it's on us to know the difference and know when we should give our consent and when we should withhold it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's dive right in. This is this was kind of an interesting article. I saw this tweet the other day, or actually I saw the, a tweet about this story the other day. Um, Taylor Lorenz is, uh, she is a, I'm going to use the word reporter. She would probably refer to herself as a journalist, but in the sense that a journalist is there to, you know, tell the truth and to let uh, people sort the facts and, and, and just decide for themselves what it all means. Nah, she's, she's more of a mouthpiece for the regime. And so I guess to illustrate just how disconnected mainstream media has become from reality. You, you really need to, to understand this comment that she made um, in, in a recent, uh, well, she, she made, I guess it was a tweet that she sent out. 
that said, people are like, why are kids so depressed? It must be their phones. But they never mentioned the fact that we're living in a late-stage capitalist hellscape during an ongoing deadly pandemic with record wealth inequality, zero social safety net job security as climate change cooks the world. You have to be delusional to look at life in our country right now and have any amount of hope or optimism. Uh, how's that for a nice wet blanket thrown over the party? <laughs> Holy smokes. Now, <clears throat> there's an article here from Ilya Levine from the Foundation for Economic Education. And and uh, it's a Washington Post technology columnist, uh, uh, Taylor Lorenz. She's she's the one who she's the one who outed the founder of uh of libs of TikTok, like doxed her, went to her home, wanted to question, went to her sister's home, tried to uh, tried to publicize where she lived, the founder of, of libs of TikTok, in order to you know sick the woke mob on her. She's she's a pretty she's a pretty amazing piece of work that Taylor Lorenz. But in this article by Ilya Levine, Levine says this is a misinformation dense tweet. This idea that we live in a late-stage capitalist hellscape, combining several popular progressive tropes. So there's a lot to take issue with, both factually and tonally, but Ilya says, look, I'm going to limit myself to six points. Number one, timing. Depression rates among 12 to 17-year-olds were flat at around 12% for girls and 5 for boys between the years 2007 to 2011, but they started to climb dramatically in 2012, reaching 20% for boys, 20% for girls rather, and 7 for boys in 2017. Of course, neither late-stage capitalism nor climate change nor the pandemic started in 2012. Number 2, as far as the pandemic, well to be sure, the COVID-19 pandemic inflicted serious harm on societies and economies around the world. However, <clears throat> for the low-risk youth, greater psychological physical and financial damage was done by the lockdowns that were imposed in response to the virus. <clears throat> Edinburgh University's professor, Mark Woolhouse, an expert on infectious diseases, lamented in The Guardian, we did serious harm to our children and young adults who were robbed of their education, jobs, and normal existence, as well as suffering damage to their future prospects while they were left to inherit a record-breaking mountain of public debt. He says people over 75 are an astonishing 10,000 more times more at risk from COVID-19 than those who are under 15. So for her part, Lawrence is a lockdown maximalist. Responding to her paper's article about China's extreme COVID, zero COVID policies, Lorenz tweeted that choosing not to kill off millions of vulnerable people as the U.S. is doing isn't a critical flaw. Mm, she's clicking those heels hard there. Number three, where she talks about social safety nets. This is the familiar claim that the U.S. once had a generous welfare state until it was slashed to the bone by trickle-down Reaganites and neoliberals. And again, the timing is odd. America's most progressive president in decades, Barack Obama, was midway through his eight-year tenure in 2012 when the mental health crisis appears to have started. Now, it's also misleading to claim the U.S. government advocates little to social spending. Of the nearly $4 trillion in federal spending in 2016, almost three-quarters went toward human services, with Social Security at 24%, Medicare at 15%, health at 13%, income security at 13%, accounting for the bulk. So as a share of the U.S. economy, public social spending surged from 6.71% in 1965 to 12.84% in 1980 to 14.25% in 2000. 
to 19.32% in 2016. That's a significant rise. And more recently, Washington's fire hose of of pandemic stimulus cash became one of the drivers of the inflation crisis. In other words, don't blame capitalism for that. Now, on the matter of job security, Elia Levine says, nor should you blame capitalism for the damage that COVID-19 and lockdowns did to the employment market. Lorenz refers to the growing gig economy in a subsequent tweet as an example of a pernicious trend in job insecurity. But this is actually a mixed bag, offering both upsides and downsides. About two-thirds of current or recent gig platform workers think companies that that run these platforms are fair when it comes to their pay, but smaller shares say the same for benefits. A 2021 Pew study concluded this. Pew also reported almost four out of five gig workers had a at least a somewhat positive experience with these jobs, with almost one in four reporting a very positive experience. Room for improvement, certainly, but hardly a hellscape. As for record wealth inequality, while well, the lockdowns and the Fed's overinflation of the money supply were bad for middle and lower class incomes, even so, Lorenz's characterization is simplistic. For example, the U.S. middle class does appear to have shrunk from 61 to 50 percent of the adult population. However, the lower income category grew by only 4 percent to 29 percent, while the percentage of upper income adults expanded from 14 to 21 percent. Further, according to Pew, black adults, as well as married men and women, were among the biggest gainers in income from 1971 to 1921, with net increases ranging from 12 to 14 percentage points. All right, let's talk late-stage capitalism. This is number six. This is another bad cliche rooted in Karl Marx's 19th-century prediction that capitalism will collapse under the weight of its contradictions. Well, the subsequent century instead saw Marxist dictatorships rise and fall, while the capitalist West built islands of historically unprecedented peace and prosperity in Europe, North America, East Asia, and the South Pacific. By the dawn of the 21st century, only a handful of impoverished police states like Cuba or North Korea were still holding out for the post-capitalist paradise. Ilya Levine says in the West, true believers continued to seize on every economic downturn as a sign that the revolution was nigh, but today, 175 years since the publication of the Communist Manifesto, there isn't a single post-capitalist country in existence that's as wealthy, technologically advanced, or politically and socially free as the capitalist democracies of the West. Even China, which poses the century's greatest challenge to the West, only reached its current level after abandoning Marxism and Maoism and embracing a mixed economy. Speaking last August, China's vice premier, Hu Chunhua, said that it was necessary to make great efforts to attract new foreign investment. One can picture Mao spinning in his mausoleum. Like the great helmsman's mummy, the late-stage capitalism cliché should be laid to rest. And so so should Taylor Lorenz's phone. Ah, man. Look, capitalism, as most people understand it today, is that the laws and policies favor those who have the capital. In other words, you can buy as much influence and policy as you need to from legislatures, which, uh, not surprisingly, are for sale. But capitalism in its pure sense, and I mean in, in the sense that it, that it was once understood, is really nothing more than the free market, meaning a market unencumbered by outside interference with government, whether it's via regulatory, you know, capture of, of various industries, or it's just, you know, interference, protectionism, that kind of thing. 
We don't have a true free market, meaning there's a lot of government interference at various levels. Having said that, though, whatever vestiges we have of the free market, that's what re- that's what's responsible for the prosperity that most of us still enjoy today, notwithstanding the post-capitalism hellscape that uh, Taylor Lorenz seems to see. I'm grateful for people having the ability to choose where they will spend their money and taking it to where they find the greatest value. Central planning can never deliver because central planners don't know your needs as well as you do. Only you know what you really need and what you really want. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. All right, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, the war drums that are beating in our nation's capital. I, I'm sorry, this is a depressing subject. This is this is not, you know, happy, good news. But I feel like maybe it's time that we just revisit first principles for a few moments. And since, uh, since there are those in power right now who seem to be thinking that, uh, well, you know, the... The only thing we can do right now that will make the world a better place is to confront Russia and drive them right to the point of, of where a nuclear confrontation almost seems inevitable. I mean, you know, growing up as a child of the 80s, you know, growing up in the era of Red Dawn, I remember the, the thought of, wow, man, the Soviets, they're nuts. They really are determined. They're going to, uh, they're going to hit the button. And in fact, there was a lot of people concerned at the time that Reagan was, you know, going to hit the button, you know, out of confusion. Well, Judge Andrew Napolitano has a great refresher course on war and the Constitution. I don't know if it's going to do any good, but if you want to at least know what is our government rightfully supposed to do, how is it supposed to approach war? If you understand what the Constitution allows or empowers government to do, you ought to be able to pick up on the fact that there's a pretty big disconnect between what powers it may rightly exercise and what it's currently doing. So Judge Napolitano says, can the president fight any war he wishes? Can Congress fund any war it chooses? Are there constitutional and legal requirements that must first be met before war is waged? He asks, can the United States legally attack an ally? These questions should be front and center in a debate over the U.S. involvement in Ukraine. Sadly, there has been no great debate. The media are mouthing what the CIA is telling them, and only a few websites and podcasts, including his own, Judging Freedom on YouTube, are among them, challenging the government's reckless, immoral, illegal, and unconstitutional war. Now, as a reminder of how the the Constitution works, seeing as it's the document that called our federal government into existence, all power in the federal government comes from the Constitution and no other source. Congress, however, has managed to extend its reach beyond the confines of the Constitution domestically by spending money in areas that it cannot regulate and purchasing compliance from the states by bribery. Examples of this are the numerical minimum alcohol, or minimum blood alcohol content to trigger DWI arrests and maximum speed limits. In both instances, Congress offered money to the states to pave highways provided they lower both numbers and the cash-strapped states accepted the money along with congressional strings. These are bribes from the criminal consequences of which Congress has exempted itself. That's an excellent explanation, by the way. 
it is nothing short of legal bribery. Now, Napolitano says the same takes place in foreign policy. Congress cannot legally declare war on Russia since there is no militarily grounded reason for doing so. Russia poses no threat to, the, to American national security or American persons or property. Moreover, the U.S. has no treaty with Ukraine that triggers an American military defense. But Congress spends money on war nonetheless. How much have they sent so far? $100 billion? Another $10 billion wrapped up and ready to go? Under the Constitution, Napolitano says, only Congress can declare war on a nation or group. The last time it did so was to initiate American involvement in World War II. But Congress has given away limited authority to presidents and permitted them to fight undeclared wars. Examples of this are President George W. Bush's disastrous and criminal invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and the War Powers Resolution of 1973. So Congress not only has not declared war on Russia, it has not authorized the use of American military forces against it. Yet it has given President Biden a blank check for $100 billion and authorized him to spend it on military equipment for Ukraine however he sees fit. He has promised to continue giving Ukraine whatever it needs for as long as it takes. Well, as long as it takes to do what? He cannot answer that because he has no clear military objective. Eliminating Russian troops from Ukraine and Crimea or Russian President Vladimir Putin from office are not realistically attainable military goals. Congress has only authorized weapons and cash to be sent to Ukraine. But Biden has sent troops as well. The U.S. involvement in Vietnam began the same way. No declaration of war, no authorization for the use of military force, yet a gradual buildup of American troops as advisors and instructors, then a congressionally supported war that saw a half million American troops deployed, 10% of whom came home in body bags. Now, we don't know how many American troops are in Ukraine since they're out of uniforms and their whereabouts are a secret. We do know that they are involved in hostilities, since much of the hardware that Biden has sent requires American know-how to operate and maintain. And some of the weaponry has American troops actually targeting Russian forces and pulling triggers. So are American soldiers killing Russian soldiers? Yes, says Napolitano. None of it has been authorized by Congress, but Congress has paid for it in borrowed dollars. Now back to the Constitution. The War Powers Resolution which requires presidential notification to Congress of the use of U.S. Mil of American military force, is unconstitutional because it consists of Congress giving away one of its core functions, declaring war. The Supreme Court has characterized delegating away core functions as violative of the separation of powers. Nevertheless, Biden has not informed Congress of his intention to use American troops violently. Yet he has used the Navy and the CIA to attack Germany, a war crime and a violation of the NATO treaty, and has soldiers out of uniform in Ukraine so as to perpetuate the deception that boots are not on the ground. Napolitano says don't be surprised if Biden gives War Powers Act notice secretly to the Gang of Eight. What's that? Well, the Gang of Eight is the Congress within the Congress. It consists of the chairs and ranking members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees and the Republican and Democratic leaders of the House and Senate with which the president legally shares secrets. Just as Congress cannot delegate away its war-making powers to the president, it cannot delegate them away to the Gang of Eight. The whole concept of the Gang of Eight is antithetical to democratic values. 
Informing them of whatever violence the president is up to is done under an oath of secrecy. And Napolitano asks, what kind of democracy operates and kills in secret? The various treaties to which the U.S. is a party limit its war-making ability to that which is defensive, proportional, and reasonable. So if a foreign power is about to strike, like on 9-11 while the government slept, the president can strike first to protect the U.S. Beyond an imminent attack, the basis for war must be real. The adversary's anti-U.S. military behavior must be grave. The objective of war must be clear and attainable, and the means must be proportionate to the threat. So here come the hard questions, or at least the hard question of the day. Has Russia threatened the U.S.? No. What grave acts has the Russian military committed against the U.S.? The answer is none. What is Biden's objective? Well, he won't say. Does Congress uphold the Constitution? Does the president? Judge Napolitano says the answers are obvious. We have reposed the Constitution for safekeeping into the hands of those who ignore it. The consequences are death, debt, and the loss of personal liberty. I'm sorry, that's, that's some pretty hard news. It probably tastes pretty bitter. You know, I know it does to me to recognize that, oh my gosh, he's right. So if it seems like, well, you seem pretty indifferent to the plight of the Ukrainians there, Bri. Look, I understand. Innocent people are being crushed and ground up in that war. There's a lot of innocent people that are suffering needlessly. But I'm going to bring it back to what business is it of the United States to be over there? Not just, They're not helping. They're exacerbating the situation. By the way, if, if you have time, I would recommend please check out lewrockwell.com and just please consider that there, there are some really solid explanations for why there was a buildup to war in Ukraine. Moon of Alabama is one of those uh, accounts that I like to look at just because uh, it, this, is, this, is, this writer, I don't know who, what the person's name is. I know he was a former member of the U.S. military, but uh, it is... It's a very good source of information. If you want a good, dispassionate take on what's actually happening and why is it happening in Ukraine, you, uh, you will be hard-pressed to find somebody who will give you more factual information, which, which, of course, means anybody who disagrees, well, he's just a Russian puppet. He's kissing Putin's rear end, blah, blah, blah. you got to break out of this binary mindset of it's either us or it's them. Because the sad truth that I must speak to here is... There are no good guys in Ukraine. The Ukrainian government is as authoritarian and, and corrupted, and it appears tied to our own government's corruption as possible. Russia, to the point that it wrongly initiated force in invading Ukraine, also is in the wrong. And at the same time, there were very clear warnings given. Things that uh, set in motion the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 could very easily be compared to things that set in motion the Russian invasion of Ukraine a year ago. We didn't want people playing in our backyard, and Russia doesn't want people playing in their backyard either. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. All right, I got three articles to share quickly in this last segment here. I want to start with uh, the first one. I don't know if I'm supposed to be concerned or if I'm supposed to be flattered, but I have heard that uh, censors are using AI to target podcasts. This is a uh, this is an article from the Brownstone Institute, and uh, this is from, let me make sure I got the author's name right here, Brett Swanson wrote this. He says, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter may have capped the opening chapter in the information wars where free speech won a small but crucial battle. But he says, full spectrum combat across the digital landscape, however, will only intensify as a new report from the Brookings Institution, a key player in the censorship industrial complex, demonstrates. So here's a quick review. Reams of internal documents known as the Twitter files show that social media censorship in recent years was far broader and more systematic than even we critics suspected. Worse, the files exposed deep cooperation, even operational integration, among Twitter and dozens of government agencies, including the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the DOD, CIA, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, Department of Health and Human Services, CDC, and of course, the White House. Government agencies actually uh, enlisted a host of academic and nonprofit organizations to help do their dirty work. The Global Engagement Center, housed in the State Department, for example, was originally launched to combat international terrorism. Now it's been repurposed to target Americans. The United States, the U.S. State Department, rather, also funded a U.K. outfit called the Global Disinformation Index, which blacklists American individuals and groups and convinces advertisers and potential vendors to avoid them. Homeland Security created the Election Integrity Partnership, including the Stanford Internet Observatory, the uh, University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, and the Atlantic Council's DFR Lab, which flagged for social suppression tens of millions of messages posted by American citizens. Even former high-government U.S. officials got in on the act, appealing directly and successfully to Twitter to ban mischief-making truth-tellers. With the total credibility collapse of legacy media over the last 15 years, people around the world turned to social media for news and discussion. When social media began censoring the most pressing topics, such as COVID-19, people increasingly turned to podcasts. Physicians and analysts who'd been suppressed on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and who were, of course, nowhere to be found in legacy media, delivered via podcasts much of the very best analysis on the broad array of pandemic science and policy. Which brings us to the new report from Brookings, which concludes that one of the most prolific sources of misinformation is now, you guessed it, podcasts. And further, that under-regulation of podcasts is a grave danger. So in Audible Reckoning, how top political podcasters spread unsubstantiated and false claims, this is what Valerie Wirtschafter writes, quote, due in large part to the say-whatever-you-want perceptions of the medium, podcasting offers a critical avenue through which unsubstantiated and false claims proliferate. As the terms are used in this report, the terms false claims, misleading claims, unsubstantiated claims, or any combination thereof are evaluations by the research team of the underlying statements and assertions grounded in the methodology laid out below in the research design section and appendices. Such claims evidence suggests have played a role in shaping public opinion and political behavior. Despite these risks, the podcasting ecosystem and its role in political debates have received little attention for a variety of reasons. 
including the technical difficulties in in analyzing multi-hour audio-based content and misconceptions about the medium. End quote. Wow. So to analyze those millions of hours of audio content, Brookings used natural language processing to search for keywords and phrases. It then relied on self-styled fact-checking sites like PolitiFact and Snopes, pause for uproarious laughter, exhale, to determine the truth or falsity of these statements. Next, it deployed a cosine similarity function to detect similar false statements in other podcasts. The result? Drum roll, please. Conservative podcasters were 11 times more likely than liberal podcasters to share claims fact-checked as false or unsubstantiated. Okay, here's my spin. Conservative podcasters were 11 times more likely to tell truths that were inconvenient or unpopular to regime narrative enforcers. All right, back to the article. One show Brookings misclassified as conservative is the Dark Horse Science Podcast hosted by Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying. Over the past three years, they meticulously explored the complex world of COVID, delivering scintillating insights and humbly correcting their infrequent missteps. Brookings, however, determined 13.8% of their shows contained false information. So what would the Brookings methodology, using a different set of fact-checkers, spit out if you applied it to CNN, or the Washington Post, or the FDA, or CDC, or hundreds of blogs, podcasts, TV doctors, and science communicators who got nearly everything wrong. Speaking on journalist Matt Taibbi's uh, podcast, novelist Walter Kern skewered the new AI fact-checking scheme. It pretends to turn censorship into a mathematical, not constitutional concern, or as he calls it, sciencey, sciencey, sciencey BS. The daisy chain of presumptuous omniscience, selection bias, and false precision employed to arrive at these supposedly quantitative solutions, or conclusions rather, of the, about the vast, diverse, and sometimes raucous and often enlightening world of online audio is preposterous, and yet it is deadly serious. The collapse of free speech or support for free speech among Western pseudo-elites is the foundation of so many other problems, from medicine to war. Misinformation is the natural state of the world. Open science and vigorous debate are the tools we employ or deploy to become less wrong over time. Individual and collective decision-making depend on them. Again, this is from Brett Swanson. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of flattered. I'm sure that there are those who would say this, this podcast is 100%, you know, misinformation. All I know is I speak freely. I share what I hope to be good, timely, credible information. And for the most part, I think the accuracy of the the sources that I have turned to has been pretty good. If not, hey, I'll do my part to to help correct it because I I don't want to mislead people either. But I'm not operating under the impression that, well, I have the one true way and only I can tell you the truth. You shouldn't be listening to other people. I want you to listen to as many voices as possible. But I hope that as you're going through that process, you discover, I hope you'll discover, that not all voices are as credible as the next one. But ultimately, you've got to be the one who becomes practiced enough and has honed your skills finely enough that you can make that determination. All right. Two articles I want to touch on just in the the brief moments that I have left here. Um, Tom Luongo has an excellent essay published on lewrockwell.com today, about some of the lessons imparted by the TV series Clarkson's Farm. I actually watched the first season of this a few months ago. It's at Jeremy Clarkson, if you remember him from uh, Top Gear. 
And the guy is the guy is a brilliant storyteller. And when he uh, retires from Top Gear and buys a farm out in the English countryside, it's really a, a remarkable lesson on just how hard it is to be a farmer and to do what farmers do. And, of course, Clarkson makes it very entertaining. He shows the amount of bureaucracy that you have to fight through. And as Tom Luongo points out, you will see how farming is just another front, and then Clarkson's farm in particular is another front in the war on food. I'm of the opinion that there's very little we take as, take for granted as much as the food that ends up on our plates. I mean, as long as we can trundle on down to the big box store or the local supermarket, we, we feel like, ah, oh, there's no worries, man. The food's always going to be there. But history has shown that is not always the case. And it's going to be a very sad day when people realize that uh, food production isn't some magical thing or somehow they just create it out of thin air. I recommend take a look at this article. It's included in today's show notes. I think you'll find it uh, well worth your time. Last but not least, I want to talk about with all the craziness that's going on, I hope that you are perceiving that there is also a great awakening that is taking place. J.B. Shirk, who writes for AmericanThinker.com, has, uh, I, I love the positivity of his messages. And one of the things he points out is, you know what? We are in the middle of a historic great awakening right now. Because the crazier things get, the more people are finally forced to admit, you know what? This doesn't seem quite right, or things are not as they should be. And he says, it's very clear that more and more Americans and Westerners generally are awakening to the dispiriting reality that successive self-serving governments have turned most of our cherished rights and freedoms on their head. This process, far from taking place overnight, has been decades in the making. So after so many generations have endured harms at the behest of constitution-betraying bureaucrats and self-loving proto-tyrants, we are on the precipice of real change. And he says, that's a choice. That's a choice that belongs to you. And the people who find the courage to exercise free will will free themselves. So he says, do not be misled. Seize the day. And I assume that's in part what you're doing simply by tuning in to a program like this. I hope you find this information useful. This is The Brian Hyde Show.